Uh, not that, again, we can simply become, should raise our tolerance and so on and so on. It's something, uh, first, I want to claim is that every society is based on something which are impossible to support. And I reject this logic of, uh, of uh, oh, but we must widen the circle. No, at certain levels we must even narrow the circle of what is permitted. For example, classical example, rape. In many countries it's not considered such an horror, rape. But in our societies it is. And probably if you were to mockingly make fun of some victim of rape or defend not openly, but you know, in this disgusting, sleazy way, communist way, who knows, maybe the beach enjoyed a little bit south. Uh, you would have been isolated, excluded. And it's not, it's very dogmatic. And I say, why not? Maybe this is even one of the measures of civilization. How, how elevated this, let's call it, ethical, doc, uh, ethical, dogmatic approaches, and I found this quite good. So what I want to say is that first, uh, this is again what uh, annoys me when people see in these satirical newspapers, Charlie Hebdo and so on, only this, oh, freedom, we make fun of everything. No, look just at the limits of this freedom and our prohibitions. And again, I'm not opposed to it. I'm just saying that we cannot Afford it's unworkable. The simple idea of, okay, enjoy your freedoms, but don't mess with other people's lives. The moment we live in an open global society like today, this is unworkable. Let's say another, I'm sorry if I repeat an old example that probably most of you know it, but let's see what happened in my own country, Slovenia. Roma, the Gypsies community, had a problem some five years ago. A lady, a lady, a young girl, 12, escaped from them, claiming they want their parents already sold her in advance a prearranged marriage and so on. And then all the multicultural feminists exploded in rage, of course, you should give her protection and so on. But then a leader of the Roma community says, wait a minute, where is your multiculturalism? Arranged marriages are a basic feature which holds our community together. It's a community which is not exclusively, but very strongly based on pre-arranged marriages. So, as this uh, Roma leader said very nicely, okay, you prohibit this, then don't talk about multiculturalism. Then, if one, two generations, we cease to exist. So, you see, where is the problem? Uh, okay, in a similar way, for example, when in some Western European countries, I know examples from, from Sweden, from Netherlands, from Germany, when uh, so-called Muslim fundamentalists are attacking homosexuals and so on and so on. I find this uh, wonderful, not in the sense that I agree with this example, but wonderful in the sense that it shows all the ambiguity even of prohibitions. First thing that's problematic here is that, you know, even if you say, okay, 
let the machines do whatever they want. The problem, so-called fundamentalists, of course, the problem is what if they are bothered with another way of life? What if they find intolerable not what is done to them, but what others are simply doing? Because this is, for example, what I know happens in Berlin. And Judith Butler, I think, went a little bit too far there. It was a nice heroic act, you know. She was given some medal, I don't know, for supporting gay rights. And then, uh, and then uh, uh, she rejected that medal uh, because gay activists there attacked Muslims for attacking them. And she still thought that anti-Muslim racism is a priority over gay rights. So heroically, she still rejected that medal, criticizing the organization which offered her that medal for being anti-Islamophobic, anti-Islamist, and so on and so on. But nonetheless, so again, uh, this, uh, what I'm saying is that you cannot organize in this sense society, you see my point, now we come a little bit closer to theory. You cannot organize a society on some universality where you say, okay, to each of you your particular mode of life, but universally we have to respect certain rules. You cannot do it because at a certain level, and it's not some abstract, extreme, eccentric, idiosyncratic possibility, but in a very concrete way, this universal problem, universal rights will always encroach upon certain of these particular ways. They are never neutral. And the only thing I am for is here is simply to, to accept this deadlock. There is no easy, liberal, tolerant solution. Uh, uh, what do I, again, let's go on. What do I mean by this? Now, when is the intolerance of our very tolerant ways? The problem I see is this one. Okay, when you set the limit, for example, I don't know if you know, but among many religious leaders, uh, ideologists in Europe, there is now a popular idea circulating that, that blasphemy or attacking, humiliating another religion should also be made illegal, that you need a code of religious tolerance. Of course, not surprisingly, it's a, a Muslim leaders which basically want to, in this way, impose in Europe a prohibition of criticizing Islam. Although one must say that, uh, like, if you try to criticize uh, 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 to criticize uh, Judaism, you get even faster into trouble. But what I'm saying. Is that is this what interests That uh, uh, here you got immediately into a problem. For example, once I had recently, where was I? I think somewhere close to my country was it Austria, where a debate with a Muslim intellectual, and 
he said that the point of this rejection of blasphemy of the East is simply that they don't feel properly treated, they don't feel respected enough. He said something which in a way was true. He told me, it's not enough for me that you tolerate us. We want to be respected properly. And we want to be respected not in this patronizing way like a stupid child. You know, you have your crazy religion, but okay, you are human beings, I respect you. We want to be respected for what we are as Muslims. We want to be respected. Then I told him, okay, I'm an atheist. I think religion is bullshit. Do you respect me for that? <laughs> you know, I said, I just want the same rule. Not, okay, you are crazy here, you don't see there is God, how beautiful nature is, all these miracles and so on. <laughs> but, you know, on the top, I said, do you respect me for that? And, of course, he didn't, basically. <laughs> Later, I heard that this guy said to a friend, and my friend was listening, how can I respect a, a dog who doesn't believe in God? <laughs> no, you know what I mean? There is a further problem here, and I like this. The most ingenious answer to was given to, to these people was given by uh, some religious scientist who said, that if you really apply, and this gives us a deeper lesson, you will see which one. If you really apply this rule of, uh, you know, which no blasphemy, no humiliating of other religion, well, isn't there a self-evident fact that the first text that should be prohibited then are the founding texts of our religion themselves? So I said, I totally agree with you, but begin with yourself. Bible goes out, Quran goes out, because you can find, my God, is it even worth mentioning? Like, take, take each of them, take the Old Testament. And I, I did a little bit of inquiry. It's a wonderful moment, you know, uh, you know Moses on the top of the mountain, you know, oh, I see the valley already down, and then usually the story stops there, you know. But you know what happens then? Who is the guy? It's Joshua who takes over and it's the first fully recorded case of pure radical ethnic cleansing. You know, the people who were living down there in the valley. The valley was not empty. There were many tribes there and God says to, I think, Joshua, uh, like, kill them all. Children, wives, and so on and so on. Now, it's interesting to read how advocates of the Bible try to squeeze out of it. No? It's very nice. First, they play historicism. You know? They say, oh, these were diff different times, they had different codes. Okay, my obvious answer is, of course, but uh, these are not our codes. You know, like, they have different codes. And, but their religion emerged precisely in that society with those. Second point they say is that, this I found the most naive one, that, uh, that the second counter-argument is that uh, how do we know that these tribes down there in the valley were not really evil, you know? <laughs> the third one, which I found most interesting, it's like small book accountancy, is they found some places 
in the Bible later, which mention a person obviously still alive from those who should have been totally actively cleansed. And they say, so you see, they weren't so bad. They didn't kill them all. Some of them No, but seriously. What I, what I want to say here is that uh, in this sense, because then if you, when you try to convince them, then, uh, okay, but nonetheless, the ultimate reply you get, we cannot debate this, it's a sacred text. Well, all I can say is that if there is anything we learn from people like René Girard and so on, is that sacred is always linked to moral. <laughs> There is no sacred without God. Sacred is a mask of God. But uh, 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 now let me go on with uh, intolerance in our society, the most benevolent intolerance. Uh, do you know, I learned this lately and I like it, E.T., you know, the creepy movie. I'm sorry, I'm evil here. The moment I see that figure, it is. I became a Nazi, I want to squash it. <laughs> Do you know that? <coughs> sorry. Do you know that upon its release, E.T. was prohibited in Sweden, Norway, and You know why? Metamorphosis. 
that she was instructed to be in her class. And since the professor dismissed the her complaint, this uh, uh, multiple affairs advisory board proposed sensitivity training classes for professors, uh, teaching them how to deal with attacks, with attacks on uh, with uh, survivors of attacks, with persons of color from low income, and so on and so on. Now, of course, the problem. Again, is here that where do you stop? Isn't it that in all classical literature, Bible, Dante, up to, as we all know, Huckleberry Fiend, and so on and so on, you find racism, sexism, violence, hatred, and they are simply everywhere. Uh, so, uh, again, where do, you, where, do you, where do you put the limit? And it's not only that poor people, this people, may feel hurt. What about the rich people who cocoon themselves to avoid getting triggered by close encounters with actual lower classes? What, so again, my first reproach to this strategy, protect, the, protect, protect us from traumatic experiences, is that this is precisely, predominantly, from my experience at least, the, the structure of those, of the privileged classes today. That they, for them, any experience with, this is always my approach to this uh, politically correct people who are sensitive against insults, dirty topics, and so on and so on. Like, but do you have any contact with actual lower classes? Do you know how they talk? Do you, know, you wouldn't survive among them for five minutes. Like. I mean, I mean. Uh, uh, so again, my first reproach is this logic of being of uh, dwelling in cocoon safe spaces. This is precisely. Uh, the strategy, this is precisely the strategy of the, of the rich. Uh, so, uh, uh, my problem is the following one. Uh, this politically correct idea that you need to feel safe in the classroom. I don't think you should feel safe in the classroom. I think, on the contrary, my task as a teacher, although I may be a weird teacher, is not to make you feel safe, if anything, on the contrary, to make you feel unsafe, to make even brutally to force you to con control, to force you to, con uh, to, sorry, not control, to force you to confront the horrors that are out there. Now, of course, the politically correct answer for me would be, of course, people should be taught about racism and so on, just they shouldn't be exposed to it directly. I claim, again, you cannot, you cannot do it. You cannot live in this safe cocoon universe and just be taught from a safe distance about horrors going, on, going out there. I think that the ultimate paradoxical formula would have been that basically human life itself is, is, uh, is uh, triggering, triggering in the sense that it always 
shocks you and helps you. So, if you want to play this game to the end, you know, just before you are born, I would send a little bit message into the mother, you know, trigger warnings, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and so on and so on. <laughs> uh, uh, again, one should be taught that we do not live in a safe world. The point is not how to protect you from that world. The point is how to intervene, how to change it, and so on and so on. So, uh, again, of course, there are victims, and so on and so on, and I'm totally for... Uh, protecting them, but not in this way, not in this way. You know, again, what I find wrong is this attitude of just not hurting people and so on and so on. Well, the first thing to do is elementary reflection. People get hurt, but they are not automatically right if they feel hurt. Uh, for example, for an Imagine this beautiful image from novels, a um, uh, lady from old American South, upper class, living on a plantation. Of course, if she gets too close to slaves, not too close to slaves, this is very traumatic. Now, would you rather describe 
when did you decide to wear a beard? What I want to say is that uh, I published this text in German, in Germany. My God, no, Germans are my new friends. And you know, for example, to give you a wonderful example of this limits of political correctness, I was recently, a week ago, a month ago, in uh, Mannheim, close to Frankfurt, there was a big Friedrich Schiller festival. You know Schiller, the big German writer. We give you even most more, more, more And my friend, Uli Alofi, the crazy Israeli movie maker, was staging some performance there. And I was there, I enjoyed it. In the morning, before the performance, he was doing last-minute stage preparations, rearrangements, and his German assistants, I mean stage workers, were a little bit clumsy and screwed it up, something, some, some tables fell down, whatever. And he shouted at them, he's, uh, I mean, if you think I'm tasteless, you should listen to me. He told them, where is your German organization? If Germans, if you were to be, if, if you were to be in the Nazi era clumsy like that, you would never have succeeded even in doing the Holocaust. You know, it's <laughs> wonderful because all the people there, you know, they didn't dare to laugh. They were totally, totally at a loss, you know. And then I stepped in. I couldn't resist. Things even worse. I told him, Udi, listen, I know Holocaust was a horrible thing. They killed millions. But I told him, listen, if we accept that it had to happen, why couldn't they also throw into the oven your parents so that a monster like you, embarrassing people here, wouldn't disturb us? And again, he laughed, embraced me, the others were even more perplexed. <laughs> but you see my point, how we, we were practicing actual anti-racism. With all our vulgarities. And wait a minute, I'm not now saying that to be anti racist you have to do this. You know? <laughs> it would be a nice world where the only way to prove that you are not anti Semitic is to participate in a dirty Holocaust uh, joke and so on. You know? But no, seriously, what I want to say is that there, the Germans' embarrassed <laughs> reply was, if anything, a proof that. Not just that they feel guilty, that they were insecure, but that, you know, their position wasn't clear. So, what I want to say, let me go on, is that, uh, yes, in Germany, they like me. So, I published that, a comment, you know, this wave of refugees in southern, uh, across the Mediterranean, no? I don't know how people react here in Britain, but in Europe, Two replies are predominant. One is the uh, anti-immigrant populist one, no, of terror threat to our way of life, course of wild Africans are coming, we must stop them, and so on, whatever. Uh, then, then, uh, then there is the left liberal approach. It's a shame, where are we in Europe, primitives? Thousands are dying there. It's an ethical fiasco of Europe and so on. If anything, I take this second uh, attitude even more. Why? Because I claim it's such a 
hypocritical stance, they know very well that simply totally opening the borders is not the solution. That if you do this, probably one million, two millions will come, you would have right-wing working class, probably, unless in Europe uh, you would probably get Le Pen in power in France, and so on and so on. But it allows them, left liberals, to assume these beautiful soul positions. You know, this is what intellectuals like to do, this moral attitude of, oh, we are scandal, how can people be so cruel, we are the only ones with blah, 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 because they know they will not have to pay the price for it. Uh, so how would I approach it? Uh, I, my solution would be, now I come to the point I wanted to make, not to, not to, the choice is not should we allow them in or should we stop them. It's also not enough just to say the solution is not to accept them all, the solution is to, uh, the solution is to help them there in Africa. I mean, George Bush, the president, was saying this all the time. It's good to do this, of course, but it's not the solution. I think that if you really worry about starving Africans getting drowned into there, you know, you should begin with, but what accounts for this recent mega flow of refugees? And you discover something about which you don't read a lot in the media. That all, and when I say all, I mean all, all the hotspots, were created by Western interventions, directly military or economic. Okay, I will not repeat my mega point of uh, that I mentioned in my books of the ultimate humanitarian catastrophe, Democratic Republic of Congo, which is kind of a Conrad, Joseph Conrad type heart of darkness, but as such, totally integrated into Western economy. The state may be a true rogue state in total chaos and so on, but, uh, but mining functions and the extraction of naturals, it functions perfectly to everybody's satisfaction. As I told you, uh, now, uh, you remember uh, two years, three ago, I've written about it, there was a military rebellion against the central government close to Rwanda, and, okay, our media again went into Oh, another ethnic war, all oh, this tragic story of whatever. But then uh, you should just read in close detail what was the main demand of the rebels. You know what? That the federal government in Kinshasa should break, should, uh, uh, should, how, should how, uh, cancel a big con contract with China. Because the central government did something which may be objectively just another gesture of Chinese uh, economic imperialism, but I think in Congo it would have worked, because this is what Congo needs. The Chinese made this deal, this offer. We will invest enormous sums, we talked about two, three hundred billions, I think, minimum, to simply provide the entire infrastructure of Congo. You know, Congo doesn't function as a state. So the idea is phone, post, railways, highways, universities, simply to make it a functioning state. Of course, there is a price to pay. That is the day Chinese will get most of the minerals. But I think it's the first step. It's the only solution. And this is what 
triggered those warlords in the East to protest because they had their own mining contracts and so on and so on. So again, it had nothing to do with some kind of a primordial, primitive ethnic conflict. And let's go closer now. You remember, if you read about it, in Central African Republic, and it's incredible, I even checked it in Wikipedia, and you don't find any of the true background. It's like this in Central Africa. You have here Southwest, a uh, uh, Christian Catholic majority, and you have in, have in the Northeast the Muslim minority, not many minority. They are some 30, 40 percent. Then, as we like to say, crazy ethnic hatred exploded, brutal civil war between Muslims and uh, Catholic majority. And France intervened, establishing peace. But this old hatred, hate passions, this. You get them even in some right wing media, but you know, small letters. What ethnic hatred? In the Muslim Northeast, oil was discovered. And the Chinese had put relations with Catholic majority. They wanted the access to that oil. France, the great fighter against Muslim fundamentalism, made a deal with Muslims there and basically staged the primordial ethnic hatred rebellion. And then France did something disgusting. They first allowed the Muslims to occupy the capital of the country and they, they intervened militarily to introduce order, but basically protected Muslim control of that oil area, and so on and so on. And again, all get, they say enemies from, uh, 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 what about refugees from Syria, Iraq, and so on and so on. Well, then, thanks to George Bush attacking Iraq, no? I mean, the whole Middle East refugee way. What about Libya? Well, then my colleague philosopher Bernard André Levy, who, as you know, convinced uh, convinced uh, 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 who was the president and still Sarkozy, Sarkozy to, to attack Libya. Again, it's absolutely incredible how we, we created, with our not so much even political as economic interests, again, uh, uh, also my friend Alec Badiou, who drew my attention to this, he showed me some reports, he even said that in all French left-center main media, Le Monde and so on, you couldn't get this information about oil discovered in Northeast or Central African Republic. He got it only in the right wing weekly, Le Point, where there was a little note on it, and then he looked further and discovered it. He told me that it's also interesting how, uh, I even think that, even it may appear a low-class desperate movement, whatever, but, uh, Whenever you have really radical Islamism, which is really aggressive, for example, Taliban are different here. Whatever they are, they are not aggressive. They are not exporters. But whenever, wherever you have aggressive Islamists, there is oil. Where they come from, you know, Northern Africa, Syria, Iraq, ISIS. ISIS is an oil phenomenon. You cannot, at 
abstract economic uh, interest. So again, uh, what I'm saying, you see, this is it. The first thing to do is to admit it. Why there were no refugees, not such a great wave, at least still, I don't know, five, ten years ago. We, we did it. We triggered it. So this is where we should begin. Neither, not to, uh, to ask how, to ask Des Hegel's definition of a beautiful soul. You know, you deplore, oh, what a horrible state, but you, you don't ask yourself in what way you co-created this world. Now, do, I hope you understand me correctly. My point is not some cheap bullshit that, uh, oh, so we are guilty this, you know, self-humiliation of white people. No, Africans, like all people, can be really evil and so on. And I often make fun of this uh, politically correct patronizing racism where whenever there is uh, a big horrible thing going on in African countries, we must somehow be guilty. But nonetheless, at this level, it's clear that we created, we should include ourselves in the picture. We are not living out here and then the choices should be stop that to enter or should be oh graciously with European openness, solidarity, open or no. To begin with, we should begin by asking ourselves in what way we are responsible for, for what is uh, happening there. And this is why, although, and I will uh, immediately go into it, although I'm very critical of China, it's also practicing a version of, uh, let's call it, uh, economic colonialism. But nonetheless, in the case of Congo, this was the only chance. You know, you have to have the basic infrastructure for a minimally functioning state. And it was successfully sabotaged. Congo remains the ultimate place of horror on the earth. Nobody cares. Okay, and, uh, sorry if I jump a little bit here and there. Now, uh, so again, at this Another point, sorry, at this level, let me return to my main point, which is this uh, limits of tolerance and so on and so on. I think it's very interesting to, uh, to analyze the so-called uh, limit phenomena, phenomena from the edge, which may appear crazy, but say something about the world we live in. Like, you know, it was reported, I think, in your media, and I love the example, who is Grace Gelder. You don't know? Oh my God, it's a wonderful phenomenon. Earlier this year, this is a professional photographer, a single woman in her 30s, who was looking for a partner and didn't find a proper partner, and then she decided, literally, to marry herself. <laughs> yeah, it was reported in the media. Uh, 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 she organized, that's what I like, a formal wedding with herself. White dress, there were witnesses, she gave the vows towards herself, then she put a ring on herself, and then she uh, 
And then she kicked herself in the mirror, like she did the Pagadian theory. Uh, all this was based, was founded in some crazy uh, uh, New Age teaching that, you know, uh, as they say, and I think it's exactly the wrong thing to say, that you can only love others if you first love yourself, if you accept yourself. So she said quite reasonably, okay, I will begin with myself. <laughs> <laughs> so she uh, the idea is this one, and it's so disgusting, and now she triggered a marginal trend, but nonetheless a trend, which tell you how to organize you begin with self-dating, like you say tonight, you tell your friend, sorry, I'm busy, already have a date. Then uh, you prepare a nice dinner with candle for yourself. You even, you have some crazy websites, but they give you technical details how to do it. Like, it's so nice that in the evening, before you go to sleep, you put on the fridge a love message to yourself. <laughs> and then in the morning you are so nicely surprised. Oh, you know, uh, uh, then you put your apartment in order, you put on your best, best dress and so on, and you do it. Uh, uh, but, uh, and then the idea is that, that when you make a date with yourself, you frankly talk with yourself about yourself, you admit all your weak points, and when you finally get to know yourself, self-marrying means you fully accept yourself. Now, first, I wouldn't laugh too much at this. I think there is a correct insight in it. We are not directly ourselves. You know, what I like in this idea of self Marriage is that, you know, if you marry yourself, you means you are not immediately one with yourself, you know? Like, there is a gap. <coughs> but uh, uh, what, what I also like is that this idea that it has to be a formal procedure. It's not just, oh, I'm myself, I like. No, it has to be a ritual. In the eyes of the big other, there are weaknesses. You marry yourself. Uh, so, uh, but uh, what I claim is that this marriage, self-marriage, is even more difficult than a marriage marrying another person. Because, you know, when they say you have to reconcile yourself with yourself and so on and so on, uh, now, my first cynical reaction was, of course, uh, but what is looking deep into yourself, you discover that you don't like yourself. <laughs> so my, I debated with one of those guys in the United States, and I asked him, okay, can I then divorce myself from myself? And what happens then? So again, what my, uh, my, my claim here would have been that first, such act of marrying yourself is at the same time extremely violent towards yourself because classic technical topic. I don't think you can really reconcile yourself with yourself. If you really want to know yourself as a neighbor in the biblical sense, it means you discover all the horror of yourself. And that this Marrying yourself is the ultimate self-control. Uh, uh, 
The second point, why I prefer marrying others. I think that, uh, that loving others is ultimately a nice way to escape from yourself. That, you know, you turn towards others not to confront the horror that is in yourself. For me, the well-known motto, be yourself, is so problematic. Be yourself. Which self? The problem is, again, that when you marry yourself, you marry basically your ideal ego, what's the best in you, the idealized image of yourself. And this is why relaxed self-identification, self-acceptance, imperceptibly turn into radical self-alienation. I think again that self, I, again, uh, I'm not telling you that, oh, uh, turning out to others, loving others, is just an escape from yourself, and it is, but why not? It's the only good thing that we can do. You see, my, my point is a much more pessimistic one. If you look deep into yourself, you discover shit, you discover, the, the, the only thing that can make our life Tolerably to turn towards others. In other words, as Lacan puts it very nicely, the true neighbor is to yourself, is you yourself, neighbor in the sense of the foreigner, which is impenetrable to you. So, which is why, as Lacan puts it so nicely in one of his early seminars, you know this biblical motto, love. Uh, 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 Fundamentalist tendency. 
but the libertarian tendency. And they are already thinking about how to how to regulate it legally, you know, because then it gets a little bit more complicated who inherits and so on. <coughs> then, let me go on. Since it's so fashionable to criticize, to, sorry, to accuse people of speciesism, you know, like we humans, we think we are something uh, superior to other species. Okay, let's say I'm really deeply attached to my dog or cat, blah, blah. Can you give me a good reason why I shouldn't marry? If <laughs> why isn't it brutal human species? You see, you see my point. I'm not saying. You, you see what I'm trying to impart on you is simply that it's not an ideal liberal solution which should be approached. But that ultimately, it's a deadlock, and you have to set basically. Uh, some uh, contingent arbitrary limits. Because again, why not? Tell me why not? Why not marrying more than another human person? The moment you go, the only way to argue for it, which would not be conservative, is to evoke inheritance. You know? But of course we should reject this. So the moment you say, there is nonetheless an exclusive bond between only two people. I am even tempted <coughs> to agree with it. But I think this is already a certain metaphysics. Which is you know, like, I agree, but like, why should it be that it's only one person? You have to go into some metaphysics of how it's two dollars, whatever. So, again, uh, uh, but uh, let me, uh, so yes, that's all I wanted to do it here. Just to give you some hints apropos tolerating lives of others, apropos uh, sensitivity to pain, and so on and so on, about how liberal hedonism, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, my God. Certainly it has certain values. But it's a very inconsistent project. It's not simply an idea that you can apply. And uh, uh, it's in what sense inconsistent? That you see, if I preach tolerance, we should be open, blah, blah, then of course I have to be intolerant towards intolerance. I don't mean this in some abstract intellectual sense, but in a very concrete sense, like to what extent will I tolerate what I perceive as intolerance in others. Like, for example, my neighbor has a strict patriarchal family, he is beating his children, his wife, and so on. Now, am I tolerant or not? And the most unpleasant, here psychoanalysis enters and complicates everything. The most unpleasant thing, and I'm not exaggerating here, is this is what I call the great American narrative from searchers to taxi driver. Is when you discover when you try to save the other from being exploited or whatever you perceive as treated unfairly, and you discover that the other has a perverse uh, libidinal enjoyment. You know, this is the point. Did you see? They are the great American narrative, in a way, an in advance intellectual self-critique. Movies like, again, I mentioned to you, Taxi Driver and uh, Surgeons. 
John Ford and taxi drivers for Sisi. You saw, I hope, the taxi driver. You see, the guy played by Robert De Niro, who explodes in violence and so on. But this violence is precisely the ultimate deadlock outcome of his obsession to help the one he perceives as a victim, the young Jodie Foster, the prostitute, and so on. You know, and uh, so uh, this is for me, again, the ultimate <coughs> ambiguity of permissiveness. That if you want to be really tolerant, you have to develop such a universe of breathtaking prohibitions and so on. You know, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't do that. And there is no simple solution here, I believe. Uh, even, you know, when things are prohibited, I think that it's even much more ambiguous what is effectively prohibited. Uh, uh, for, uh, for example, when, why are we embarrassed when the victim tells us a victim of rape, of torture, tells us it's her, his experience, the horror. I don't think it's simply we don't want to know the details. I think what we want to mask by this prohibition is the impossibility of telling people the truly, as we all know, tragic thing about reporting on a truly traumatic experience, torture, rape, whatever, is that witnessing fails, as we know, you cannot tell it all. If you can, one can even say that if you can tell it all, then when you read it so traumatized, you know what I mean, like this elementary point, like when, uh, prophetic this point, of course, when a woman who was raped reports, make sure this usually claim, oh, but you see, she was inconsistent, it was, she said first this, then that, my point is, if anything, then such inconsistencies are a subjective proof that she really underwent a trauma. If anything, I would be suspicious, of course, taking her seriously, but like, if I were to be suspicious of a rape report, it would rather have been a rape report where a lady in a totally cold voice, you know, reports, he put his finger there, then he did this, then I moved my ass like this, then that, and so on. I think, wait a minute. No, I'm not saying it automatically disqualifies her. It's possible that she had some kind of uh, psychotic breakdown and adopted a kind of a living death perspective. But what I'm saying is that uh, I more and more suspect that the prohibition to tell something is protects us from the fact that you cannot tell it. We are not afraid that we would have learned too much from but that we, but precisely that we cannot do it. So again, uh, the second point I want to emphasize from this confused report to you here is that it's absolutely crucial to see how the our in our secluded Western developed countries, the uh, growing sensitivity 
to being traumatized, you know, all these uh, trigger warnings and so on, are just the obverse of the growing brutality. My God, you know, if it is absurd, United States, we are talking about a country which, at the same time, there are people there who want to put trigger warnings on classical works of art, and the country which de facto legalized torture, so called, you know. And if you look at the brutality around the world, but it's not even only around the world. It's even, you know, I reported this in one of my books, like, it's so easy for us to deplore, oh, sweatshops down there in Indonesia, Chinese Tula. But you, you remember three years ago or when they discovered in the suburb of Florence, Florence, the top of Western culture civilization, that there is some small city in the suburbs of Florence. How did they discover it? Some barracks where immigrant workers were sleeping then burned and then immediately went to Chinese dead or what? Why? Because the conditions were absolutely horrible. And they discovered that there are only in that city 15,000 illegal Chinese workers living in total slave conditions. So, you know, it's not even there. It's here. If anything, when you have real slums out there, and not for a sentimental approach, I did this. I made some friends in Brazil. You know that in Sao Paulo, I love this, and in uh, Rio de Janeiro, uh, the favela people, you have no favela tours, you know. Tourist agency, they show you, and so on. And it's a nice uh, paradox there. I don't know if I told you this that the Lula government, the previous one, did some good things. They put, at least in many central slums, they did put water, electricity. But you know what's the result? I love so much. The slums, some slums, this one, which were regulated, well, they are now too expensive for the really poor. You know? like you have already the hierarchy of, uh, the hierarchy of slums. So again, or another point that I want to tell you here, uh, uh, for example, we live in an epoch where the ultimate signifier is human rights. Okay, but are you aware that at the simple economic level, the fact of slavery is massively returned? This is what fascinates me. With all the talk of sensitivity, human rights, there are so many forms of de facto slavery, new versions of apartheid. Uh, of course, the big example is, and I was there, uh, this, uh, but not only there, uh, Arab Emirates. You have there hundreds of thousands of people in Dubai, Abu Dhabi, Kuwait, Bahrain, who are not formally slaves, but de facto slaves. They were hired from poor Asian countries, Nepal, Indonesia, I don't know, to come there. Their passports are taken. They work for absolutely miserable uh, sons without money. Formally, they are not allowed to enter the public space, the city. You have, and who knows what's happening in Saudi Arabia and so on and so on. Then you have in all Africa, again, it's not formal statement, but it's the fact of statement, like in the ones that I already mentioned. Congo mining industry, again, you have hundreds of thousands of people de facto working in this there, kidnapped by armed gangs, 
Force Rwanda. China, Indonesia, special. In China, they are embarrassed. I read the little fish in this Countries of thousands of people are sold by poor farming families to work, especially, you know that. I don't know if you still the case, but three, four years ago, half of all the buildings, constructions in the world were done in China. So they need an incredible amount of building material, of bricks. And then while they are breaking bricks there in the middle of inner China reserve, the, the child labor can be very useful for do the simple of carrying it. So it's quite a, a formal, formalized for <coughs> but tolerated procedure. Agents do the impoverished communities and they buy for a certain period of time children up from four or five years. And so on. So, what I'm saying is that there are, this is paradox which is from the beginning part of capitalism. Robin Blackburn, with whom I otherwise don't agree politically, he analyzed this phenomenon very nicely of how at the end of the Middle Ages slavery was more or less out in Europe. But then, precisely with the explosion of capitalist modernity, Slavery exploded. Although capitalism was formally founded on, uh, you know, freedom, human rights, and so on and so on. What I'm claiming is that today, with global capitalism, exactly the same phenomenon is reproducing itself. So we do live in really, really uh, sad, really, really sad times. Now, let me just uh, conclude, because I talk too much, with another point. Namely, uh, uh, Greece, to return to Greece. Uh, you know, what made me so depressed just reading the news about Greece is when, you know, these endless negotiations, where there is always, when things happen, go on the way they did. You remember, like they said, oh, the agreement is almost there, but it's never there, and so on. This is always a symptomatic sign, a symptom that there is a deeper disagreement. And I think this disagreement is, if I may use this horrible word, a discursive disagreement. They are simply talking two different languages, the European commissars and uh, the Greeks. And it's not, as the Europeans are saying, that Varoufakis is a clown, they change conditions all the time, while Europeans simply want to talk business and so on and so on. I, uh, <coughs> did you, uh, uh, I think, again, the, uh, the vision is uh, much more uh, tragic. I think the difference is that Greeks are, and you see, present this manipulation, this referendum was presented in the West as the decision between Brexit uh, or remaining in Europe, drachma or Euro. No, if anyone really wants to remain in Europe and retain Europe is the Greek government. The Greek, the difference is between pure expert technocracy, to put it very simply, and politics. Basically, Greeks are talking, negotiating, negotiating at the level of 
Lex-Covid-Big political decision. They admitted the situation is intolerable. And they blame themselves, Greeks, most. They are not playing the game. This is total lie when Western media claim, like the Greeks are saying, oh, oh, we just have a uh, on the debt ripped off and so on and so on. No, the Greeks admitted. The Greeks even admitted that the great problem is not Western European pressure, but that Greece is an inefficient, corrupted, clientelist state, and so on. But uh, they see it as a problem not just of expert economy, how much, you know, that's the pressure. The Western, uh, the Western, sorry, the European Union negotiators, and I think the really bad guy is the Dutch idiot. Can I pronounce it correctly? Diesel blue, or what? Diesel blue, I don't know how they, who is incidentally a local agricultural expert, uh, totally idiot, one cannot say for Dutch people, but he. Uh, and she said in a recent interview, if I get into the ideological side of things, I won't achieve anything. That's the problem of Europe. Of course, the ideology here, she didn't mean, and we shouldn't mean some big phrases, freedom and so on. But simply, what the Greeks insisted on is that the problem is basically an economico-political one. It's not just this problem of detailed numbers as they presented, you know. Because it's so shocking, and I followed negotiations below, it's so shocking at the level of numbers or even concrete measures, how close they were all the time. Like, the difference at many points was something that would have amounted in financial terms to one, two billion per, per year. No, the problem is that uh, Greeks made a fundamental point, which was, till now it's obvious one, we followed a certain model a certain model of austerity and so on. It obviously didn't work. You, the Western people, you will never get any money back in this way. And surprisingly, as Perufakis pointed out, did you read this? The one who gave them right now is IMF itself, which proposed 20 years debt moratorium and so on and so on. That's the basic Greek statement. Europe was following a certain politics, and this is economic politics. This is not just some expert decisions technical. A certain politico-economic vision of how to approach it, which doesn't work. And Varoufakis, I talked in detail with him, he told me, uh, isn't Europe seeing that in this way, Europe is itself is losing in the wrong, sorry, in the long term. Like the story I repeat in my books, I already mentioned it here. Europe is in crisis, not world capitalism. As I told you the story, you know, that when I was in Korea, not yesterday, this time I only went to catch that much virus, but before, <laughs> I talked about crisis and they started to laugh at me. They said, who is in crisis? Latin America, a little bit, still not. Even, even Sub-Saharan Africa globally is moving. Who, who is in crisis? We in the Far East are not. You, Western Europe, part of it, you are in crisis. And I really think this, that uh, you, I put it now in a little bit hypocritical terms, but that you, uh, uh, you should be 
pinnacle of Western Europe management, not only if you are some kind of a crazy radical leftist, but even if you are, uh, now we will see Nicola, uh, 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 moderate pro-capitalist Eurocentrist, you should be worried. Because Europe is losing in the long term. I thought if it goes like this, in 20, 30 years, we will be just uh, the, a popular tourist space for rich Chinese and Americans. And so, so we are losing. So the Greeks are saying, no, sorry. It's not just that do we lower the retirement, the pension for 5 or for 6 percent? Do we, I don't know, do we raise those taxes and so on, more or less? No. They say a radically new approach is necessary if you want money back from us. Then, my God, you should somehow enable us to produce more so that we can pay you back. That's their argument. Even when they talk about debt, as Varoufakis put it very nicely, you should look at it, it's really wonderful. Short eight minutes interview that I mentioned Bloomberg on July 2. When he says that, it's not Greece which is living in dreamland. It's European Europe. They still follow that formula, extend and pretend. They know very well that that will not be ever repaid. Not only this, but if you follow economic news around the world, you will discover that practically all the debts will never be repaid. Like now I read some analysis and the joke is not from left-wingers, from some conservative right-wingers in America, where they even mathematically demonstrated that the United States debt, which is tremendous, at this point is $150,000 per family. And they make this experiment. They said, let's say that some kind of a totalitarian economic dictatorship takes place in the United States. So that all the surplus goes to repaying the debt, you know. They just provide a minimal standard of living for the people. They even have the army or whatever. Just the whole United States starts to work for the debt. Maybe in 60, 70 years, probably not. But it's a ridiculous solution. So first, that's the first problem. And, and when so many cities, American states like Puerto Rico now, Puerto Rico is three times worse than Greece and so on. But so, you know, the problem is this one. First, when we talk about debt, there are debtors and debtors, you know. Like you have countries who are too big to fail and who are, have an unfair advantage. Like if you worry about debt, don't talk about Greece, talk about the United States. But the United States are privileged. Why? Because they have dollar, they can print dollar, you know, they can cheat. They are a country who is indebted, but they like, can print money, can control the conditions of the debt. Then you have the big banks who cannot be allowed to fail, and so on and so on. So maybe the time has come to talk. It's not simply that some rich bankers are getting rich while others are indebted. No, there is even a class hierarchy between indebted countries themselves. So, uh, uh, what, what is so frustrating for the Greeks? Varoufakis told me that this was what was behind, you remember those reports, I don't know at what negotiations last, that he went, lived 
left the room. He told me he was talking about fundamental issues and he was treated like a pupil, third grade, said, no, 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 don't escape into generalities. What about half percent here? You didn't give us a clear answer. You know, Europeans are treating this as a kind of a minor expert administrative problem. They don't see the big political choice to be made. And this has even nothing to do with the left. So what's the conclusion from this? The conclusion is for me a very sad one. I don't know what the reactions will be of Europe, but the latest I heard this morning is that it looks pretty bad that the reaction of Europe will be pretty furious, you know. I mean, it's a catastrophe, if you ask. You know Valfak is resigned, Sorry? <laughs> Sorry? You know Valfak is resigned, no? Yeah. Okay. yeah. Yeah, but uh, do, what do you know? You have inner... No, no, no. no I, I mean, did he... I know, but, but did he... I wonder, was this... Obviously, he knew it before that he will do it, probably. Yeah, yeah, he announced it. Is this a strategy just to, uh, just to subtract, uh, uh, to take away a problematic person or what? Because for me, you know, he is among all these guys the only true intellectual. It's so sad the reason was thrown out, you know. I think he resigned at the right time because he made his point. I think he resigned after he won the argument. So in some respects, he resigned. At yeah, what argument did he won? The 60%? Yes. Plus, okay, but you know what I'm plus, afraid. Plus, if yeah. there is a... Sorry, I don't want to... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, plus if there is um, within the... Within the series of party, there's obviously a lot of people who want please to exit the euro altogether. So now... I know it, what it is. It'd be easier if, you know, if Cyprus is going that way, it'd be easier to do it with uh, having had the 60%. Yeah, but you know what is the problem here? Costas, I hate him. Friend, he used in his text my old Rabinovich joke, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and you know this, didn't oh, you yes. Then I should tell it to him. I hate him. He should, this is my eternal joke. <laughs> <laughs> one you know that Rabinovich wants to immigrate, yeah, yeah. immigrate from Soviet Union, two reasons, the blah, blah, blah. You know that he told me that exactly the same joke is now circulating there. A Greek guy comes to Australian embassy and wants to emigrate. And uh, yeah, yeah. he didn't even report correctly the joke. He lost the point. <laughs> I want to emigrate from Greece for two reasons. The first reason is that there will be Brexit, and there will be further poverty, chaos. I want to go out. Then the Australian guy tells him, but don't worry, this is just negotiations. At the end, they will make a deal, and European technocrats will rule Greece, you know, there will be order. And he says, that's my second to emigrate. So it is a difficult decision and so on. But you know, uh, you know what I, can you help us, not only here. My problem nonetheless is this one. What, okay, I put it like this. I was, Costas' uh, talk, remember, if you were there, we had some stupid round table about Greece a couple of months ago, where Costas made me very sad, because he said that he described the Greek strategy as his terms, if you are there, you are there, as uh, 
manipulating with poverty, human catastrophe, and playing a clown. Now, I want to use this term, it shocked me, like a little bit extravagant and so on. Okay, do you remember how Koskas a year ago and two was saying a new type of leftist political subjectivity is emerging in Greece? No. I'm almost tempted to say in a very vicious way, yes, this is a new role for the left, to play, to play a begging clown. <laughs> no, what I'm seriously saying is that no, this, this strategy, it's not that it's humiliating and so on. Europe, technocracy is really evil. They will not have mercy. It will not work. So what I'm saying is uh, this, uh, like, Nothing unexpected happening happened from the European side. Maybe I thought they, the Greek government, didn't they have some big plan or what? Like, you know what I mean? Did you hear any rumors here? What did they expect? You know what I mean? Like, nothing unexpected happened. If anything, I expect, if I were to be European, uh, defenders of technocratic interests, I would have been even much more brutal. They, I hope, maybe here they were surprised. They didn't manipulate enough the fact that, for example, it's quite a shock, but you know that in a discreet way, the United States, even the right leaders there, are more on the Greek side. Discreet. You know why? Because they are worried that if there is a Brexit, this will push Greece into Russia, China's hand, and out of NATO. Do you remember two, three days ago, the NATO General Secretary said Greek is crucial for defense, especially now with Erdogan playing his own Islamist game and so on. So I thought they would succeed more here. No, but again, uh, it's an extremely, it's, uh, you know what only is my, okay, I will repeat and then conclude with the, my last joke, which I will make here. You saw the movie V for Vendetta. You know how it ends. The crowd takes over uh, a parliament and so on. I would sell my mother into slavery, which I would in any case. <laughs> my point is to see part two of that movie. What happens then the next day? How do they organize life? What measures and so on and so on. And that's for me the big problem. And I infinitely appreciate Syriza for heroically at least confronting this problem. I don't care about this, what happens in Greece, in Athens, yes. Yes, it's wonderful. People demonstrating, crying, shouting, again, these pathetic things. But you know, there is what I call, in Lacanian Marxist terms, the real of the capital. It's this eternal story, a democratic uh, government, popular, authentic, is elected, from Mandela to Lula, and then there is big, big hope, but then ultimately you have to make a deal with capital. Capital is serious, real. And that's for me the problem. This is why I don't think some people claim if there is too much of a compromise, Syriza should simply step down or what. No, and here are Maoists. You know, Mao said, whatever you do, cling to power. <laughs> I would remain, make all the compromises even you have to put some pressure on your leftist circles and silently work. My God, Syriza should learn from Stalin. What can they do? They can penetrate the state apparatus with their people. You know, they can 
lay the organizational foundation, you know, that they will not be alone. Now they must have been in a terrible situation. Terrible situation in the sense that police, sorry, yes? I was just going to say, it's not just Greek, it's not just about Greece, though, is it? They can do that, but they can also join up with Podemos in Spain and... Yeah, but here and... they were disappointed. This was the biggest disappointment. I agree totally with you. But Podemos, I have even stronger doubts, although my God, I publicly support them and so on, Podemos, but you know, I'm sorry for this obsession of mine, which always brings me in trouble with Kostas, no? But fact demonstrations, what do you do then? For example, some desperate people in Greece now say Syriza uh, uh, became too much a party of government. They should return to their roots and so on. I agree, blah, blah, but still, what will you do? The big, all other things are, can be negotiated, but how to deal with capitalism? Reality, with the real of capital. Can you really disturb it? What to do and so on? And this is why I know what people are saying. I was saying this all the time. And maybe we should get, get tired of it. Namely what? The obvious fact, which it was right to emphasize, that uh, basically if you look closely at what Greek government was pursuing, this is also what you don't get in the West. Forget about the debt. But in inner Greek politics, you can maybe, Maria, you know what I would like to do? Let's say we are on our TV. And now I click the button, our special correspondent from the <laughs> They should do your square, there is syntagma square, constitution. We should maybe move, I always make this joke, from syntagma to paradigma, to paradigm. You know? We need a new paradigm of everyday life. You know, what to do there? So again, uh, like, uh, 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 all the time we are emphasizing, I read this in some, even economists here or somewhere, that if you look at what the government, Syriza, was doing within, it was doing a very good job. Better collecting of taxes, no crazy spending, and so on. It was doing, even from standard bourgeois capitalist standpoint, moderate good politics. The point is that, uh, as I always repeated, that if you look at their politics, it's what would have been considered 50 years ago a very moderate social democracy. So, of course, the question is, where are we now, where, in order to practice modest social democracy, you appear as a, as a radical leftist? Varoufakis is, for me, a true tragic figure. Now he is mocked as crazy leftist, but did you read, it was published in Guardian, at least online, his own speech in Zagreb, where he said, I want to give European capitalism a chance to reinvent itself as well. But like, he even said a little bit problematically that uh, he wants to save capitalism. But obviously it doesn't work. And what if, now comes my pessimism, what if the European establishment is right here? Right in the sense that no matter how much Syriza says, but guys, what's the problem? We are so modest. It's all moderate social democracy. What is nonetheless their right in Europe? Haha, you will not deceive us. In these today's conditions, even such modest demands are radical. They are a threat to the system. I think this is the horror. And which, at the same time, gives us hope. 
So I think even if Greece fails, it, it will just, the problems will reproduce themselves. Even if Europe somehow stabilizes itself, it will become another province and so on and so on. I am to cut a lot of stories off. Maybe something new will happen, but the big Europe was my problem. How, maybe it's not even possible at a local level in the sense of one government to undermine the rule of the government. Because again, for me, the problem is, again, which was always the limit of leftist governments, you know, you can play your democratic games, a little bit of justice, blah, 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 but when it comes to confronting capital, and again, not at the level of big declarations, but how to reorganize daily life and so on and so on. So tomorrow, uh, I will tell you where we will go. I want to give you, it's funny, a theory of China today. What is really happening there? Because crazy things are happening there. They have now a new atheist campaign uh, for, you know, that there is a religious freedom, but not, uh, but not for members of the Communist Party. They want to insist on atheism there. But the truly wonderful thing is that how ambiguous that atheism campaign is. Between the lines, I found some official statement where they are even saying not only Communist Party members shouldn't believe in the religion, it's better even if they don't believe too much in communism. <laughs> because uh, the true danger for them now, if you don't read about this in the media, are communists who still believe in communism. No. There is a potential mixture emerging of old, disappointed, honest communist cadres joining hands with these totally marginalized workers and so on. This is the truth here. Forget about Tibet and all that bullshit. It's pure class The whole Chinese state is now organized. This is why they emphasize so much Confucianism. And there is such nice Hegelian irony. They say uh, socialism with Chinese characteristics. And what is this Chinese characteristic? Global capitalism, you know. So it's exactly the opposite what they are saying. And all this all this Confucian stuff and so on. It's just okay. Then I will go into philosophy via something that should interest you, I will go in detail into it. Did you follow a little bit this Heidegger scandal? Yes. Like books? Yes. Okay, to provoke you. Of course I will defend Heidegger. <laughs> because I think it's a politically total, at first I'm disgusted at Heidegger, to avoid a misunderstanding. He was a total scum and so on. But I'm claiming the political stakes of this attacks on Heidegger. It's simply the last stage in this Habermasian, rational, enlightenment, liberal campaign against more radical French theory. It's this old story, we who follow la commune de l'Eustre are closet fascists, irrationalists, and so on and so on. It's another story behind. So through this, we will go into, I excuse myself for, to you for today, I was again uh, jet lagged. You know what, what I was doing with my son there? You know what species things? Those species places you were collectively, you play computer games and so on. This is the only 
one palace, royal palace. I saw it from a taxi window, then I said to the taxi driver, okay, nice to see it, let's go to Gardena to play. So again, I sincerely apologize and totally gently. Tomorrow I warn you, we go into fear. First China, then Heidegger, then Hegel, religion, and so on. Sorry again for the confusion and see you tomorrow. Thank you very much.